Hello. I made a bit of a boo-boo on Sunday morning. I didn't press the right button, so there's no recording of the sermon. But that's okay. This gives me a chance to record again, this time just for you. It's you, me, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Let's commit this to God in prayer first. Lord, I ask for your blessing on this time and on this message, that the words that I speak will be from you, and that your Holy Spirit will work in the hearts of those listening, and that your will is done. Amen. So we're now uh, at Acts 13, verse 4, and this passage that we're looking at today talks about the beginning of the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. It's Acts 13, verses 4 to 12. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. What happens when we don't involve God in our plans? You you know, it feels like not a sermon goes by without me confessing to some character flaw or sin. I'm a dreamer. That's not a flaw in itself, of course. We need people who dream, people who have ideas, people who challenge the status quo. But dreamers without wisdom can be a danger to themselves and to others. In the Old Testament, Joseph unwisely told his brothers his dreams about how he would be so much better than them. The brothers were so incensed, they sold Joseph into slavery. That story turned out okay because of God, but there were parts of his story that were deeply unpleasant for Joseph, the dreamer. I have wasted time and money on dreams. I once bought a classic car, an old Jaguar XJ6, and beautiful thing in a dark blue. It was lovely to behold. It wasn't particularly expensive, which was just as well because it didn't work. And I had this grand idea of restoring it with a friend of mine. The trouble was, small problem you might say, I really didn't know enough about cars. I spent some more money on all the proper cleaning equipment, but at the end of the day it was just a lightly rusting lump of metal on the drive, albeit a very clean rusting lump of metal with a smashed windscreen. Did I mention I smashed the windscreen? I forget what I was trying to do at the time. Whatever it was, it obviously didn't work. 
I eventually sold that Jaguar for less money than I bought it. I don't think the smashed windscreen was a particular selling feature, if I'm honest. And it's left my house the same way it arrived on the back of a trailer. I never did drive it anywhere. When we have ideas and schemes and dreams, we do well to remember one simple principle. Commit it to the Lord. I don't remember whether or not I asked God if I should buy a non-working car, but for sure, if I did, he probably didn't tell me to buy it. And sometimes we hear, or think we hear, what we want to hear. Granted, the Lord might have been quite happy for me to buy the car, if only to learn an important lesson about my own naivety. I'm still learning this lesson, the lesson to involve him in everything. It takes hardly any time to ask for God's advice. So I wonder why we don't. I lost a few hundred pounds on that venture, which isn't great, but I take great comfort from the fact that at least I didn't buy Lycos. Who or what is Lycos, I hear you ask? Great question. 20 years ago, Lycos was the third most visited website in America. It was a competitor to Google, an internet search engine. When you want the answer to a question, have you ever lycos it? No, I thought not. You Google it. And you can tell where this is going. In the year 2000, Terra, a Spanish telecoms company, bought Lycos for $11.6 billion. Four years later, they sold it again for $95 million. It lost 99% of its value in four years. Now, that would be like, like me buying the Jaguar for £400 and then selling it for £3.25. I bet the terror executives hadn't asked God if they should buy Lycos. And what about the 12 publishing houses that turned down J.K. Rowling when she asked them if they would publish the Harry Potter books? It was Bloomsbury that finally said yes to Rowling on the advice of the chairman's eight-year-old daughter, Alice. In September 1788, the Austrian army were at war with the Ottoman Empire. In an incident between the Austrian soldiers that seems to have involved alcohol, a disagreement led to a shot being fired, and this escalated rapidly, and in the confusion, the Austrians started shooting at each other. And reports vary, but it seems that they killed thousands of their own men that day, thousands dead by friendly fire. The Tower of Pisa took 177 years to build, and just 10 years later, well, you know what happened. There weren't enough lifeboats on the Titanic because arrogant humans declared it unsinkable. Committing our plans to the Lord isn't a guarantee that things will go our way, but keeping him out of the planning is madness. There are quite a few examples in the Bible that highlight the difference between doing something God's way and doing it our own way. Elijah and the prophets of Baal, for example. In that story, you might remember that Elijah is up on this mountain with the prophets of Baal. He's one of the last remaining prophets of the Lord, and then there are the dozens of these prophets of Baal, this religion that's taken hold of the nation, and he issues a challenge. Let's see which is the real God, 
uh, and call down fire on these sacrifices that they, they built. So they built their altars, they put sacrifices on top, the prophets of Baal had the first turn and they danced around it and they slashed their arms because that was what they did and they prayed and called out to Baal and, and nothing happened and Elijah taunts them and says mm, maybe maybe he's asleep this Baal or maybe he's on the toilet. It's an interesting um, metaphor in the in the original text there and nothing happens obviously because Baal's not real and then Elijah has his go and to really make his point he gets water poured over his sacrifice and so much water he said do it again do it again so much water it's pouring off the the altar and the sacrifice and on the ground around and then he prays to God and fire immediately falls from heaven and burns up the altar and Elijah says pretty much told you so and all the prophets of Baal are then slaughtered. Acts 19.11 to 16 gives us another great example. This is a bit further on. Um, Acts 19.11 to 16. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognise, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So on the one hand, you have Paul operating under the direction and the power of the Holy Spirit. He touches a handkerchief, and that handkerchief then carries healing power to those who are unwell. And remember, this is under the direction and the power of the Holy Spirit. If you try this handkerchief strategy in any other way, don't expect it to work. On the other hand, you have the seven sons of Sceva. Although they used the name of Jesus, they weren't really following him. They weren't working for God. They didn't know Christ, and they're soundly beaten for their troubles. Now, there's definitely a lesson for us in this. As well as committing all our plans to the Lord, we should not be presumptuous. We can't invoke God like he's some cosmic slot machine. If you read the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, you'll know about Aslan, the lion in the stories who represents Jesus. And the thing that's often said about Aslan is, he's not a tame lion. God is not our servant. There's no principle we can call upon to guarantee that God will do what we want. And this is one of several ways the prosperity teaching goes so disastrously wrong. I don't believe that God wants us all to be millionaires for the simple reason that would be really bad for most of us. Walking according to God's plans and purposes will always be the best way, not because that's the way we get the most stuff, but because that's the way God's will is done. And God's will is always for good, even when we don't understand or see that with our limited human eyes and intellect. Acts 13 verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. This is a godly mission. It has the blessing of the creator of the universe. And following his guidance, they set off for Cyprus, which was the original home of Barnabas. And Cyprus is not far west off the coast of Syria and south of what's now Turkey. Uh, verse 5. 
When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist him. Listen to something else that Paul says in Romans 1. In Romans 1 verse 19 he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So in Cyprus we see Paul and Barnabas with John Mark starting by preaching to the Jews in the synagogues on the island, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And there are probably several reasons why they spoke first to the Jews. Here are some possible ideas. Firstly, whether we Gentiles like this or not, God chose Israel. And the first covenant, the first close relationship between God and his subjects was with the Israelites, the Jews. Jesus, speaking to the Samaritan woman in John 4, says, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. And in history, this is how God chose to work. Jesus was a Jew, and when the Jewish people considered themselves to be chosen, specially selected, they were right. They are right. So, secondly, if Paul had chosen to speak first to the Greeks, the Gentiles on the island, this would have been a terrible snub to the Jews. It would have alienated them and made it so much harder to evangelise. And we need to be wise in our dealings with people, not blundering around hoping hoping that God will bless everything we do. Not sure what God wants you to do? When in doubt, ask. I think you know exactly what you should do. When confident, still ask. And there's a third reason why Paul and Barnabas may have started by speaking to the Jews. Remember that these, these people already believed in God. So worship of God wasn't, a matter of, wasn't just a matter of faith for them. It was also a matter of culture, of tradition, of heritage. They had the Old Testament and they knew it well. It spoke of a coming Messiah, a saviour. So in a sense, their hearts were already fertile ground for receiving the seed of the gospel. And when the Jews believe, this starts to build a kind of inertia, forward momentum for the spread of gospel beyond them to their Gentile neighbours. This trip to Cyprus marks the start of Paul's first missionary journey, and he and Barnabas arrived on the east coast of the island, and they travelled its full length, so we next see them down in the southwest at the city of Paphos. Acts 13 verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And this isn't the first magician we've seen in Acts. Uh, do you remember Simon the sorcerer from chapter 8? The name Bar-Jesus means son of the saviour, but clearly at this point he's no such thing. Paul later plays on this name, calling him son of the devil. I, I don't know about you, but I, I've been reading this passage thinking, I wonder what a magician actually did in the first century AD. I mean, I mean, did they do card tricks? Did they saw people in half and put them back together again? The well-known science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke had a saying, several sayings, this is one of them, that guided him in his writing. And it's this, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So there are a few different explanations of what this magic might have been, but it may simply have been that Bar-Jesus knew things other people didn't. And maybe he knew that if you mixed certain powders together, you could cause an explosion. Or maybe he used sleight of hand to make gold coins seem to disappear. 
or maybe he was operating under the power of Satan. And we don't want to give the devil too much credit, but he's not without power, and at the very least, he is a skilled liar and manipulator. We also know that Bar-Jesus was a Jewish false prophet. He might have been something like an astrologer. And one of the features of astrology is that the predictions can be so obscure and generic that they can mean almost anything. And people find a way to interpret the predictions as true. And this is confirmation bias. They already believe in astrology, so they're predisposed only to see what supports it. I've had a similar experience with cars. Whenever I've replaced my car, suddenly the new type of car is all that I can see on the roads. And we're, we're wired up to recognise patterns, and this can lead us astray. However he operated, Paul and Barnabas had the discernment to see that Bar-Jesus was an enemy, not a disciple of Christ. He may have been a Jew, but he was no servant of God. Acts 13, verse 7. He, that is Bar-Jesus, was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. A proconsul was one of the most senior officials in the Roman system of government. It sounds like he was well chosen for the role, given this description as a man of intelligence. The fact that he has Bar-Jesus with him, but that he also calls for Paul and Barnabas, suggests he was open-minded and wanted to learn. The Romans had their own religion with a multitude of different gods, and they saw Christianity and Judaism as false religions. So it would have been quite something for a Roman official actively to seek out knowledge of the word of God. But also note, even though he's described as an intelligent man, he's keeping this loser, Bar-Jesus, hanging around. Compared to God, everyone is stupid. What do you mean, Rob? Well, let's imagine that three people are comparing how much money they have, and Alice comes along and she's doing okay. She's got £1.20, and she's talking to Bob. How much money do you have, Bob? I have £1.20. And Bob gasps in amazement. Wow, Alice, £1.20? I only have 80p. You're so rich. But wait, here's Charlie. And he's swaggering along. He knows he's it. He's arrived. He's got the turquoise ankle warmers and the clip-on tie. Hey guys, how are you doing? Says Charlie. Want to guess how much money I've got? I've got three pounds. Not one pound twenty. None of your pitiful 80p nonsense. Sorry, Bob. Three pounds. That's more than both of you put together. And so Alice and Bob are jealous, and Charlie is smug. Compared to each other, Charlie is rich, and Bob is poor. But what about God? In this story, he's the one with a million pounds. A million. Count them. No, you can't count them, because it's a million pounds. And Charlie may well have thought he was rich, like some of us think we're intelligent, but compared to God, he's very, very poor. Compared to God, none of us is intelligent. Sorry. He's on a completely different scale. His thoughts are higher than ours on so many levels. And that's one of the reasons why we should always listen to God, always seek his advice, pray for his counsel. We think we understand things, we think we know what we're doing, but we really don't. 
And once we start to see the vast difference between us and God, we start to understand why he is so deserving of our worship. His his goodness is so much more good than ours can ever be. His justice is much more just. His love is more loving. His wisdom is wiser. His grace is extreme grace. Don't be too impressed by Sergius Paulus, the man of intelligence. We certainly don't need to be intimidated by him. Acts 13 verse 8, but Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Elymas the magician? I thought you said his name was Bar-Jesus. Okay, well in the next verse we're going to cover Paul's two-name situation, Paul and Saul, and it seems that Bar-Jesus was also known as Elymas. Elymas means magician, so perhaps it was some kind of stage name. Anyway, magician two names opposes Paul, Barnabas and John, and his intention is very clear. He wants to turn the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, against the gospel. You don't see this with every conversion, but sometimes, sometimes we get a real sense of the battle for someone's faith. God wants this person and the devil doesn't want to let go. But guess who wins? in the whole God versus the devil battle scenario. The devil doesn't even have 80p. He's got like 5p, and he stole that from someone else. Bar-Jesus is trying to keep the proconsul from discovering the truth about Jesus Christ. Verses 9 and 10. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, "'You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy,' Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Kapow! There's that play on names. He's not Bar-Jesus, son of salvation. He's Bar-Diabolu, son of the devil. And Paul's saying this, full of the Holy Spirit. And first they're sent to Cyprus by the Holy Spirit. Now he's speaking this stonking rebuke under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. In Colossians 4, verse 6, Paul says... Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Well, sometimes the grace of God may season our speech with a different kind of salt, salt that is abrasive and provocative. Do we think it's always wrong for Christians to say things that might be offensive? Certainly in our British culture, we tend to go out of our way to avoid causing offence. But look at the example of Jesus himself. When the time was right and in accordance with the Spirit's direction, he could unleash some powerful condemnation. Matthew 23, verse 27. Here he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Whitewashed tombs. So tombs were unclean, and the scrupulous Pharisees would avoid touching them at all costs. But here Jesus is saying that they themselves are unclean. They've just covered themselves in a thin layer of paint to disguise their uncleanliness. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild? I don't think so. But, and I can't stress this enough, this has to be under the direction of the Holy Spirit. We aren't to go around rebuking and condemning everyone. Nowhere does the Bible tell us to do that. We can do harm to the gospel message if we take that approach. Only when the time is right, when the Spirit is leading.
We should always look for the leading of the Holy Spirit, always. Now, Saul, who was also called Paul, what's that about? In several places in the Bible, we see God changing someone's name, redeeming it, if you like. Names were very important to the Israelites. Abram became Abraham. Isaac became Israel. Sarai became Sarah. This isn't one of those occasions. It's actually no more complex than what the text plainly says. Paul was also called Saul. Why the two names? Well, Saul is a Hebrew name and Paul is a Roman name. It's like my name in English is Robert, though I prefer Rob, and in Klingon it's Kvof, though you can just call me Kvof. Up to this point in Acts, I don't know if you've noticed, but Paul has been interacting mainly with Jews, and so Acts has referred to him as Saul, his Hebrew name. But now Paul's begun his mission to the Gentiles. He's on a Greek island speaking to a Roman, so his Roman name comes out. And in fact, in the rest of Acts, he's referred to as Paul, except for a few cases that talk about past occurrences. So Paul was a Jew to the Jews, and to them he was Saul, and he was a Gentile to the Gentiles. With them, he was Paul. In all situations, he sought to relate well to those he met. Except, as directed by the Holy Spirit, he spoke respectfully, meeting people at their level, appealing to their culture. Paul charges Bar-Jesus with deceit and villainy of making God's straight paths crooked. Bar-Jesus was twisting scripture to his own end. In fact, that would have to have been his stock in trade, perverting the scriptures. The practice of magic is directly outlawed in the Old Testament, so we can only imagine what lies he'd been telling in order to make himself appear acceptable to the Jews. After God's dealt with him, he will no longer be able to lead people down twisted, evil paths. Verse 11, Paul says to him, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. You'll, of course, recall that Paul had his own experience with divinely inflicted blindness. The curse that falls on Bar-Jesus, we may consider it to be harsh, but look, we see the grace of God even in his punishment, his discipline. Paul says that he will be unable to see the sun for a time. And this is a limited thing. Bar-Jesus will feel the severe hand of God's correction, but after that, what he does next will be up to him. We don't ever find out whether this sign from God was enough to bring Bar-Jesus back to the true faith, but what we do know is that it was enough for the proconsul. Verse 12, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Although we walk by faith and not by sight, miracles have long had a role to play in the path to conversion for many people. And we thank God for his mercy in showing his power to those who will struggle to believe in him in any other way. These nine verses have an overriding theme. It's mentioned repeatedly in this passage and throughout the book of Acts. And it was a key theme in Keith's sermon last week, moving according to the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit. You know, every day of our lives, there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't begin the day saying, Holy Spirit, guide me today. Let me get rid of that double negative. We should ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance every day. And it's a simple prayer. It's a prayer of humility and submission 
a prayer that reminds us that God is God and we are not. Holy Spirit, please guide me today. There's a profound verse at the beginning of Psalm 127. Check this out. Psalm 127 verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The disciples had to be sent out by the Holy Spirit. It was absolutely essential to the success of the mission God was giving them. Unless the Lord builds a house, the workers labour in vain. It doesn't matter how clever we are, how charismatic, how successful in human terms, how many friends we have or how much stuff. Unless the Lord is working, unless we are involved in carrying out his plans, not our own, we really are wasting our time. All other houses are built on sand, and when the waves come, they will fall completely flat. Holy Spirit, please guide us all today, this week, this year, for all our lives. Amen.